And just wanted, wanted to make sure I don't know if you were worried about being arrested for sedition or something. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't think they got me on the video, so <laughs> it should be okay. Hey, Vanessa. Hey, Dom. It's Uncertain Things, a podcast with you and me. It's, ex- it's an indisputable description. <laughs> Our guest today is Tamler Summers. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of Houston. He's the co-host of the fantastic podcast, Very Bad Wizards. And he wrote the book, Why Honor Matters, which is what we're going to talk about. Yeah. So just quickly, as you may or may not be aware, we are less than a week after the deadly storming of the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Uh, And and we won't be uh, belaboring this issue because everything has already been said. But we did bring it up with Tamler because, first, it was still raw in our minds. And second, this incident has encapsulated so many of the emergencies, social and cultural and political emergencies that we have been talking about on this podcast Obviously, the bifurcation of media and the dysfunction of politics, but more deeply, the extreme widespread alienation, atomization, the loss of a shared story and common purpose, and the abdication of common responsibility. These are some of the fundamental causes of the collapse of institutions that we witness all around us and which prompted Vanessa and I to start this a podcast, and we had some of our most melancholy discussions about this with David French and Tom Holland, which I recommend re-listening to in this somber context. But the reason I bring all this up is Tamler, in his book, Why Honor Matters, diagnoses these maladies as not mere symptoms, but as something that is fundamental and inherent pathology in liberal societies or as he calls them, dignity cultures. And what he means by dignity cultures is societies that see the person as a completely autonomous unit. The person in a dignity culture is born free and is only constrained by his commitment to an abstract, usually universalist in nature, law that demands that he does not infringe on the freedoms of others. For Tamler, this conception that is at the heart of the liberal system cuts out and removes the person's responsibility to his community, to his environment, which is why Tamler suggests it's time to rehabilitate honor culture, where the bonds and relationships between people are seen as the soul of the society, not the individual. We, you know, in typical us fashion, we we dwelled a while on the pathology side. But that said, I do think you'd want to pick up the book if you really want to understand exactly the ways in which honor culture has lessons to teach us and potential ways of of containing some of uh, the the ill effects of our more individualistic culture. Right. But it's also worth saying that it's not as if Tamler is suggesting that we should discard all the lessons of liberalism and just become a full-fledged honor culture, right. even if it were possible. What he is saying is that Honor cultures have gotten a bad rep because of utter killings and blood feuds and all those other practices that liberalism has supposedly consigned to history. Yeah. But he's saying that maybe we should look back and just acknowledge that some of those aspects 
are now woefully, sickly absent from our, our current uh, predicament. And maybe rehabilitating some of that it could be necessary. Mm. It's a very challenging argument. And I came into the conversation to, to, to stake my defense for, for dignity cultures because I'm, I'm, I'm a wimp and I wouldn't survive a day in honor cultures. But Tamley is making a fascinating case. Yeah. Anything to try to get us out of this nightmare. And on that note, I just want to thank our listeners for all the comments we've got in the past two weeks. It's awesome. We know that sometimes our guest audio isn't ideal. And that's the, the sad reality of doing a, an independent podcast during Corona. But thank you for sticking with us as we try to march through the dark recesses of human existence. If you feel like showing support, please give us five stars on Apple Podcast. It makes a huge difference yeah. for scrappy podcasters like us. All right. And with that, Tamler Summers, who did not actually go to the Capitol. Tamler, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Before we get into why you're actually here, this is Saturday, um, two, three days after, um, after the world changed. <laughs> Do you have any immediate thoughts, impressions, depressions? Wow. Uh, I think, you know, like everybody, I was kind of taken aback and glued to the TV and doom scrolling and... There were a lot of goofy-looking people in there at the time, and so it was like, "Is this also funny?" You know, that was still up, that was still on the table. Um, and then I think in the last few days, we've seen that even that kind of dark, humorous aspect of it is is it's really not there, and that there's just something deeply wrong right now with us as a as a nation. I mean, we knew this before. This just um, this just confirmed it, um, and in a fairly dramatic way. These were believers. Like, they really believe that the election was stolen and rigged, and I think there's a big percent of the country that believes that. And, you know, when you have that, and when you have a political system that doesn't seem to do much good for anybody... That's a turbulent mix, and who knows where it'll go from here. I do wonder, on the point you said that they clearly believed that they were, the election was stolen for them, to what extent does that matter in, to how we judge this? The fact that, epistemically, they clearly believe that democracy is being taken away from them. At least some of them did. Yeah. Does that justify us looking at them more understandingly, more favorably? But somebody said this week, imagine what would have happened if Trump's phone call with the Georgia Secretary of State were successful, if he were able to threaten, bribe, cajole him into actually changing the election result. And imagine that he would have been able to do that with a few other states and ultimately managed to somehow actually steal the election. I suspect that in our mind, in that scenario, we'd feel somewhat justified supporting a mob storming the Capitol. Obviously, this doesn't justify the actions, but I'm just wondering about the, the, the state of mind of the people who are just so immersed in this lie. Yeah, I mean, so, look, I'm not somebody who's, who's looking to demonize Trump voters um, because I think their epistemic situation is one where they have been steadily fed a diet of of the this misinformation which i i mean i have to believe is misinformation um and I, if you want to blame them i think 
you blame them for the violence. You blame them for maybe not trying to get out of that epistemic situation. Not even really, you know, there, there are ways to try to look for evidence that the, that the election was rigged. I know I did it. I wouldn't totally put it past the Democratic Party to mess, uh, mess around. I mean, I think they did in Iowa with Bernie. Um, that was obviously on a much smaller scale, but like I, and they definitely did in 2016 with Hillary. So, so, I mean, it's not like you can't get yourself into a situation where you might be a little skeptical about Trump's repeated claims that the election was stolen for him and he won an alliance landslide and all that. So I blame them for that. But I, I like, I don't think blaming is the it's not like we have to decide how much to blame these people. The more urgent matter is like, what do we do about this? Like how much blame and indignation we should have. It seems like it's, that's a luxury right now that we don't, can't afford. So I'm going to use this as an opportunity to jump into discussing your book, why honor matters, which is the main reason we invited you. You start the book by listing a litany of cultural and social pathologies in America, problems which I think have been key to bringing us to start this podcast, including hyper-individuality, atomization, lack of community, loss of sense of purpose. These are things that, for the most part, way predate the Trump era. And I'm wondering, do you think that they played a role in what we witnessed on Wednesday? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think this is, we have had the breakdown of communities, the breakdown of small towns, uh, a growing sense of isolation. And, you know, it. I think it's fairly well documented, the links for all of that to the opioid crisis. And I think Trump, for whatever reason, it's sometimes a little hard to imagine from, I think, the perspective of people who um, are on the coast and, 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 and me too, like just for whatever reason, Trump gave them something to believe in. And I think if you want to try to take the most sympathetic angle on this, you can say it's because he did seem to care about them. He actually seemed to give a shit about these people that culture has left behind, that, you know, Republican establishment had left behind and clearly don't care about it, can barely conceal their contempt for them and the Democrats. And, you know, that, so now here is somebody that is standing up for them. Trump did express support for them in a more genuine way than than any of these other politicians and you know it's you can see it when people like Ted Cruz try to do it and Holly too like it they don't you know it's just so transparently cynical um Trump would often fly in the face of what people thought was politically expedient. And I think that sent a message like, I'm actually in your corner and I don't give a fuck. Like I will, you know, I will fight these people who have contempt for you and I will um, give you something that you can now coalesce behind. And yeah, I don't think that anybody who already had a really solid like, sense of meaning and purpose and community 
would gravitate towards it because it's Trump. And like, he's not one of them. He's just a real estate billionaire. Conditions might not have been ripe for someone like Trump, wouldn't have been right for someone like Trump if we hadn't gotten to this point where a whole segment of the country feels completely alienated from from any kind of social or, uh, I don't know, meaningful good mm. in their lives. A Trump-shaped hole in the hearts of so many Americans that he was in the right <laughs> place and time to, to fill. <laughs> right. So it's been widely remarked that this cavity in the soul of the nation has been pulling a lot of people to religion-like alternatives and 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 a lot of it has been taking the shape of politics and it's been remarked uh, on on the progressives on the left it's been remarked on trumpism on the right there's a real deep need that is being taken over captured by these hyper political movements so far i think there's little disagreement among scholars even I think normatively, everybody will agree that this is not a healthy alternative. But your solution is where the controversy begins. You argue that honor cultures can do a better job filling some of those gaps. So before we take our gloves off, what is honor? What do you mean by honor? Uh, yeah, I was hoping you wouldn't ask me what I mean by it, because I really don't think it's... Um it's something that can be defined all that well. I think honor as a concept covers a lot of different things and, you know, the ways, the different ways that it's used, like an honor code, an honor culture, a sense of honor. Um, and it's very much dependent on particular communities that are more honor oriented. But I will say, you know, the one one common denominator in, is that in honor-oriented cultures or value systems, people care about their reputation more, and both to good and ill effects. And they are also typically have a more heightened sensitivity to insult, so that they will feel like they have to respond if their reputation is attacked in in ways that I think people in non-honor cultures don't feel as compelled to do that. Um, I, uh, there's typically, not always, but, but often also a sense of collective responsibility, sometimes collective punishment that you both take pride in the accomplishments of your honor group and you will feel shame and a sense of responsibility for um, for the the bad acts, the non-virtuous acts, even not just that you perform, but that somebody in your group performs. And there is generally a sense of self-policing in honor cultures. There's a lot more emphasis on hospitality in honor cultures. And yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's definitely something to talk about more in its particular manifestations than, um, than in the abstract or than, or general terms. So I, I, I agree. And I think that's where we're going and we're going to drill into a lot of the specifics, but first I need to stake it out. I am 
quite uncomfortable with the idea of honor. I come from Israel. It's a society that is much more honor-centric than America. When I moved here, I had a very clear experience of what it is that you lose when you leave some of that behind. But at the same time, I'm very wary of the excesses of honor culture. And I'm keenly grateful to what you gain by putting it aside. So, and we're going to get into the specifics of some of it. It is absolutely true that, observably, some honor cultures do have a better record of, of, those, of those issues that we discussed, community, sense of purpose, belonging. But the question is, do we really need honor culture as the structure in order to reintroduce those aspects of it that we like? Can we just relive in them? Well, I don't know. Like, what, what are you thinking of that would be, that would bring a lot of the benefits of honor culture without some of the, uh, without some of the costs? Like, what would be an example of that? Religion or... Um, so religion is interesting because two of our earliest interviews have been with religion scholar Tomer Persico and British historian Tom Holland, who both wrote about how the Judeo-Christian tradition has ended up undermining itself by paving the way for a secular, hyper-secular society. And I think they would both say that we are currently paying the price for this. Now, I'm very militantly secular, so I'm definitely not persuaded by the idea that we need to have a full-on turn back to religion, but I can imagine resurrecting some aspects of it, like, like say, ceremony. Renewed ceremony around certain ideas can be helpful, can be meaningful, and could bring back some of those qualities that we think are currently lost in a non-honor-based way. So I can imagine this is at least a starting point for getting there without also getting into fistfights at a bar. Well, right. So, um, I mean, I, I think there's a couple of issues with religion. Number one, I don't know to what extent religious affiliation is voluntary. I mean, there is a degree to which you either believe or you don't. And so, yeah, I'm Jewish. I'm also Israeli, although I never lived there for any a bit of time. Um, and, and I think Judaism as a whole, more than other religions, allows a kind of non-belief to cohere with participation in all sorts of ritual, rituals and a good sense of identification. But again, you have to be Jewish for that, for that to work. And if you're not, then that's not going to help you. So, I mean, I think that honor, an, an, a more honor-oriented value system can be used in a contained way that's healthy. Um, and when you introduce that, like with sports or, um, I mean, I think sports is the best example. Another example I talk a lot about is restorative justice as, a, as an approach to punishment and discipline. Um, and wrongdoing, both criminal and um, within schools. Like these are frameworks that you can introduce that have a built in kind of containment 
to not allow some of the more dangerous aspects of honor culture to flourish, but can still make use of some of the, I think, undeniable benefits. So I don't, like, it, it's, it's not like we have to, as a society, make this decision. We're all, we're doing everything now in an honor-oriented way, right? Like we can, we can pick and choose by domain. We can um, use, use these frameworks when they're helpful and beneficial and be wary of them like you are when, they're, when the costs are too high. I think all of these ethical value systems have their costs and benefits. And one of the benefits of an honor culture as opposed to like a dignity culture or a culture that's so exclusively focused on rights and individual autonomy is it's very hard to motivate people to, to do virtuous actions. It's all about prohibiting people from doing rights infringing behavior, but there's very little kind of motivational, um, motivational stuff in place to, to get people to 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 do to come together as a community and to sacrifice short-term self-interest for some sort of common good, and I think this is where honor culture really has some advantages there, and we should we should use that where we can. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would just say you have to look at the specific situation and and and. If an honor-oriented framework, if if it's possible to implement it, and it they it can be contained, some of the dangers can be contained, then then let's use it. I guess in the same way that you might think about certain spiritual or religious uh, uh, orientations. Sometimes it's going to be helpful and beneficial and actually deeply meaningful to people um, to have a very strong focus on religion and some of the prison work that I have volunteered for, although I haven't done enough recently, but that was very focused on Christianity and belief. And, and it was really helpful. I saw it. I, I saw it with the, the prisoners. It was deeply a fundamental part of, of these prisoners imagining themselves now, um, on, in the outside world, actually succeeding and being successful. Great, you know, and other times, as you know, religion will, is, it can be extremely destructive. So in those cases, you, you want to be wary of that too. And I don't think any system is going, ha, comes without cost. Certainly not this kind of individualism uh, that we champion in America, I mean, we're seeing right now the problems of that. We're seeing the costs of that. And, um, and it's not clear what we can do about it because we're so deep into this idea. We couldn't even get people to wear masks. You know, we couldn't even get people to trust anybody uh, or even have any kind of sense that they needed to do something for the health of their own neighborhood and community. Gosh, you're there are a lot of thoughts running in my head right now. So first, you made me think about the Trump example again, and how he has created an alternative community full with its own honor codes, right? And reputational costs for for stepping out of that system. 
And you said you give the example of masks, and and I found it really interesting because you interpret the the people who refuse to wear masks as an expression of hyper individualism, right? Whereas I see them more akin to the to the Trump honorary groups. Not wearing masks is broadcasting uh, a belonging to a certain community. You're telling the person across the street who's also not wearing masks that you're part of the same group. I guess, but if you look at all the defenses of not wearing masks, it's they are the government is infringing on my autonomy and my freedom. And so maybe you're right at some sort of subconscious level that that's mm-hmm. what's going on, but at the level of the rhetoric, Um, which is the rhetoric that we have, the ethical, you know, the way people justify things. It was all about this is an infringement of our freedom. You're trying to control me and I have a right. You're trying to take away my freedom. And so, again, I think this is the kind of rhetoric, just the kind, the, the way you think when all that matters is freedom and individual liberty. Now, right. I agree. There's the, the loyalty part of it is, I think that was definitely something that you saw on Wednesday, loyalty to the leader, you know, and, you know, in that sense, I guess you could look at it as a kind of depraved, corrupt, corrupted kind of honor culture because it is just about loyalty to this figurehead, this, this, Uh, I, yeah, the, this, this king, this leader. And, and, but I think that's typically the kind of honor culture that we would want to stay away from that just has this one figure at the top that you have to profess fealty to at all costs, no matter what. That is not something that you have in most honor cultures. It is a much more egalitarian, um, and also communal um, setup. So as I was reading your book, I, I was getting the sense that, you know, your interest was less in justifying honor cultures. And mo- it was more about really reclaiming the idea of honor, mostly because, you know, its benefits have just been really overlooked because of this, you know, because of honor's bad rap, basically. Yeah, I mean, so I think... One of the things people associate strongly with honor cultures is honor killings. Um, right. And even though they are the tiniest fraction, they occur in the tiniest fraction of honor cultures and, and, and honor-oriented groups. And then I think there are people also like uh, Adam who just have this inherent mistrust and the and and suspicion of anything that's kind of smells or or smacks of a kind of honor attitudes and yeah and i wanted to show both that these that there are while acknowledging the dangers there are these benefits and also that there are that there are costs that come with our own focus on individual dignity and individual freedom that are not recognized enough. And so given that we don't just have to go full force for one or the other, we should be open to 
you know, while still protecting basic human rights, we should be open to other frameworks as well. And that required defending honor and rehabilitating its reputation, mm. I guess, um, to, <laughs> to some degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to the other point that you made earlier, I mean, about this fact that we just don't look hard enough at the ills that liberalism has wrought. I mean, I, I find that really interesting because doing this podcast, I've kind of learned a lot about why liberalism is so important to maintain, especially in a multicultural society. But your book kind of took the opposite tack. It really exposed the downsides of pursuing liberalism at all cost. So can you just expand on that a bit more? Well, let me get, I think, the best example of it, which is mass incarceration, which is something that has happened um, and I think could only have happened with uh, the kind of approach to criminal justice that um, a liberal society would, ha- would have. Now, I, I Obviously, not all societies who embrace liberalism have mass incarceration. That's definitely not true. But I think this kind of bureaucratic, legalistic, technical approach to law and conflict and wrongdoing that is, uh, I think, fundamental to um, most liberal societies that's what makes something like mass incarceration possible is to view conflicts in this abstracted way as offenses against the state or offenses against the people as a whole. It's, it's only if you take that attitude that you could have this massive, horrific um, criminal justice system that we have. Can, can you spell it out? How, how do you see this necessary jump? So you have what is called a crime. If uh, you, so, there are the there are civil offenses, and then you cross a fairly arbitrary line into criminal offenses. And at that point, the courts completely take over, and the victim is excluded from the equation. And the goal there is to give the offender punishments that they deserve. This is something that is. Uh, this the, this approach to criminal justice is at the heart. It is supposed to be is at the heart of of, uh, of a liberal understanding of punishment. You are respecting the rights. It's it's perverse, but that's the only way to respect the rights of the offender. The rights of the criminal is to have them be judged by an impartial jury um, and, and given the punishment that they deserve. But the, philosophically, there's no real way to determine what kind of punishment a, a given offense deserves. And so when you have that framework and then all of a sudden certain offenders are getting a given amount of punishment for a certain kind of crime, it, it typically just starts increasing because people will say, well, you know, this offender got three years for this crime, so then this offender should also get three years for this crime or or, or a greater amount of punishment, and it keeps ramping up. Um, if, rather than trying to address con- conflicts as what they are, which is conflicts between individuals that have sort of particular ways that they could be resolved that doesn't require... Um, uh, 
imprisonment often and, and doesn't require some illusion that everybody is being given some sort of objectively determined punishment that matches their culpability. That is just an illusion that you can't have in honor cultures because they don't approach conflict in that manner. They recognize that if you know somebody assaults me on the street, that they didn't assault the state, they didn't assault the people in general, they assaulted me. And that's the thing that needs to get resolved, not um, giving this offender some uh, objectively determinable punishment that matches their culpability. Right, you describe the problem as removing, essentially removing the victim from the equation of justice. Right, the it's the it's the offender against the abstract right that was infringed upon, right. and then it's up to the the jury to decide what it is that he deserves in punishment of violating this abstract idea. But in truth, and that's a lot of the criticism that you you know from a society that doesn't have the jury system, we will often lob at the American system that you end up leaving the decision at the hands of, of the 12 people who will obviously not actually respect the word of the law, but will vote their conscience. And you could argue, you can use the same argument to actually defend the way that liberalism can, can challenge itself, because the very idea of liberalism is very unnatural. We are much more naturally disposed to be driven by parochial honor incentives. The idea that we should respect this abstraction of the ethereal universal good is absolutely inconsistent with the human appetite for revenge. The, the, these are the impulses that uh, inform our, our primordial sense of justice, not rights, not, not, not dignity. Historically speaking, honor cultures occur all over human societies. It's liberalism that is the exception. But even liberalism has ways to rein itself in and to allow for expressions of honor. And one of those expressions is the jury system. And that's why despite uh, laying down very clear rules by which the juries are allowed to uh, reach their decisions, ultimately, it's just a box of 12 legally ignorant men and women who get to defer to their conscience in adjudicating justice. So a couple, I think there's a few things that I'd like to contest in what you just said. First of all, what percentage of cases do you think of criminal cases in the justice system go to trial. It's like somewhere between three to 4% of cases end up going to trial. The rest of them are determined by plea deals. So it doesn't even live up to its own bullshit, our criminal justice system. <laughs> it ends up just the, the punishments get determined by all sorts of political and practical matters. And in fact, uh, offenders are encouraged, and and their and their public defenders are often encouraged to reach a plea deal, or else there will be more severe consequences for them. So the the problem with our criminal justice system is not that you have these vindictive, overly retributive juries. In fact, juries are more likely to and and victims too are more likely to want a lesser punishment than a greater punishment but it it never victims are excluded from the system unless you do some you know restorative justice workaround and um and and cases rarely get to juries and they're not and and the and the system can't even couldn't even handle 
if even 10% of cases went to trial, the whole system would completely collapse. They don't have anywhere near the personnel to, t- to handle even 10% of criminal offenses. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that I think the, it's, it's, and I tried to show this in the book, but it's not that it's too abstract, you know, the way that this system defends uh, individual rights or criminal rights and gives people some, only the punishments that they deserve based on the offense that they committed. It's not that it's too abstract and that it just can't be practically implemented. That is true. It can't be practically implemented, which is why all these cases are decided by by um, by plea bargains. But the but the but the you know the reality is it's also just philosophically incoherent, and so it's it doesn't work really at any level at the practical level at the philosophical level. It is an uh, the idealization and the systematization is a kind of cloak for just a philosophical bankruptcy. Now, I can't convince you of that now, but I would urge listeners of your podcast to to just look into the justifications for the kind of retributivism that is supposedly, allegedly at the heart of our criminal justice system, which does uh, want to assign offenders punishments that they deserve in some abstract, objectively determinable sense, and see if the justifications are in any way coherent. I try to argue and am firmly convinced that they are not. I completely agree with you. The the idea, the foundations of of liberalism as as a of or at least rational rationalism in justice is 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 absolutely empty it's a it's a foundation of sand but the I, the interesting thing about liberalism i think is is the self-deception and committing to the self-deception in order to get some orderly system that that is efficient that is replicable and in some ways has successfully carried us away from the worst manifestations of honor culture. Yeah, and and to some extent, that's definitely true. Like, don't read Kant and Rawls and take them at face value and think that you'll be able to rationalize your way into a, a single coherent system of justice because you can't. Right. But the beauty is that you do need to, to some extent, lie to yourself. And as I'm a big fan of cognitive dissonance. And I think that's the the truth of liberalism that you need to take in those ideas as as really strong informative pieces of fiction that turn out to be very efficient. Yeah, I mean, so the rhetoric of liberalism, I guess, is what you're saying is is sometimes effective at curbing some of the excesses of honor culture, and, and that the rhetoric is in, inseparably wrapped in the game that you have to play. Right. Yeah, that's true. At times, and at other times, it, at other times, it it, it leads to um, some of the things that we talked about earlier, which is this sense of social isolation um, and a very like a Byzantine and corrupt criminal justice system, maybe political system, 
I, I, I'm, I'm not sure to what extent honor cultures have less corrupt political institutions, but um, all I'm saying is if you look at, say, the way honor cultures handle conflict, I actually think in spite of, you know, the, the ones that get the most press and the ones that are the most dramatic, like honor killings or blood feuds right. and all of that, that they have a much healthier and even philosophically sound approach to punishment, which does actually bring people together rather than put them in this Kafkaesque, bureaucratic, <laughs> legalistic nightmare of a system that they then like often spend their whole lives trying to dig their way out of. So you actually have great examples in your book for how, how honor culture resolves these conflicts in, in, in a more emotionally and socially satisfying way. So can you give us some concrete examples to these uh, challenges to liberalism? Well, I think when, uh, in, you know, so in honor cultures and in tribal communities, when an offense is committed, there is, you know, although everyone thinks revenge is the first thing that anybody thinks of and now we're off to uh, multi-generational um, blood feuds like blood that, feuds, yeah. uh, Hatfields and McCoys that's actually not what, what um, well-functioning honor cultures want want to do they can't afford to do that and so they have well they have built-in systems where the um, the wrongdoer and the victim are brought together with a mediator that both of them trust and they try to work it out. They try to make it right. And this is often a communal event, something that everybody participates in. And, and you know, if the offense is, is not... Uh, is not tremendous. It can be even something that people enjoy because it's fun. It's dramatic. It's um, uh, there's a lot of laughter. There's um, and 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 with restitution, with um, maybe some form of punishment, a lot of these conflicts can get resolved in a way that feels like rather than people are being alienated, people are being brought together and the offender can be reintegrated within the community, which is something that we're terrible at, is reintegrating offenders within the community. And, you know, so, something like the restorative justice movement is, is modeled on the kinds of systems uh, and the and the ways of approaching conflict that I think the best kinds of honor cultures have employed for thousands of years. So um, I think that, and and I know I haven't defined restorative justice, but I'm just going to ask you at yep. the at a, at the most basic level, restorative justice is 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 a framework for approaching wrongdoing that treats offenses not primarily as offenses against the state but as um, conflicts between particular individuals and it tries to bring them together with mediators and with other people who are who were involved or affected by the offense what they call the stakeholders um, in the conflict and they try to make it right somehow. So they have this restorative circle where people will talk, the offender uh, can answer questions from the victim and 
if if the offender chooses, the offender can apologize. Offenders can take responsibility if the offender chooses. There's no compulsion here. And then all of them together try to work out some kind of resolution that will be satisfactory to all the parties involved. And the best sorts of restorative justice systems also has once whatever that resolution is, uh, afterwards, once the offender has done what they um, what they have agreed to do, what everybody has agreed that they should do, even if that involves prison time, they are then what, institutional things in place that uh, can help bring the offender back into the community and make sure that they'll be successful as they're reintegrated. So. It's just on every level a much healthier approach to conflict to get people to work it out, to try to make it right between individuals, um, because that's who are who the people who are affected. And when it works, it's like it's 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 magical, but it it runs against this idea that um, well, now wait a minute, what if you have this? a less vindictive, more forgiving victim. And now they're going to give this uh, offender less punishment, whereas in this other town over here, an offender who did pretty much that same crime uh, is has, has a greater punishment. And that's not just, that's not fair now. Um, the, it's it's different punishments for the same crime. and 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 so like we are philosophically opposed to that kind of punishment even or that kind of approach to punishment even though of course that happens at every level in our criminal justice system but it's not designed that way we think like well that's just because we failed at the ideal but and for practical reasons but we can always try to improve um, but it's a we've are, as we've already talked about a philosophically bank- bankrupt ideal that's impossible to implement. But also, it's just not a good ideal. It's just not something that we should aim for. You know, I was actually reading something today, and this is something that has long bothered me uh, about the 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 vaccines and how a lot of vaccines are going to waste because people are worried that. Uh, some the wrong person get in line, like yeah. that, and so um, Cuomo in your state uh, threatened to give like a million dollar fine to hospitals who gave to people who aren't eligible for the vaccine, and now people are having to throw away vaccines. And this writer for the New Republic, Alex Green, compared this also to the two thousand dollar checks that now everyone is worried that people who don't need the $2,000 will get it. And that's the thing that drives uh, uh, the policy here. And it's that same idea. It's that worry that somewhere, somehow, someone will unfairly get something that they don't deserve. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. I'm going to have to push back on the idea that... um Envy is a distinct feature of liberal cultures. So just working on my experience and going back to Israel, now I'm not sure that you necessarily want to use Israel as the best example for an honor culture, but it is certainly more honor-centric than than American culture generally. 
ha, try to cut someone in line in Israel. Um, try to uh, the, the, there's the, the word for sucker in Israel, which is yeah. vile in Hebrew, is the, probably the most right. derogatory word that you can use to impugn someone. And I think it's clearly exacerbated by the, the presence of, of honor. It's not simply that you have dipped into an entitlement that doesn't belong to you as an individual. It's that you've disrupted the, the whole system and in so made me look like a flyer in, in the eyes of everybody around. Yeah. So I guess, so I know, yeah. In fact, I talk about the friar, the friar phenomenon in, in my book too. And I think you're, you're right. Um, my point is it becomes institutionalized at, in, in Israel, it's not institutionalized in the sense of, you know, it means that you're going to have a tough time changing lanes on an Israeli highway and your life will be in danger, but it's not, um, it's not going to be institutionalized at the level of an honor culture in the way that it is with us. And I think The, 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 one of the things honor culture has allows for is the flexibility to handle particular conflicts in their own ways without having to worry about whether in this other conflict over here things the you know out, the outcome will be different um, and I think you know because philosophically everyone has this notion that you need to get what you deserve to Um, again, this is institutionally out of the level of policy, you have these, you have these worries that um, are coming out about the vaccines. You mean the institutional commitment to this false idea of uh, blind dispassionate justice? Yeah. The, the, the fact that yeah. it's supposed to be disinterested, equal, that is where you say the, 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 the fundamental lie is. Yeah. Whereas in reality, like, things are just interactions between people. people and within their community there is no such thing as a universal equal uh, barometer or benchmark that everything needs to be judged against yes yeah you articulate you articulated it very well there better than I have been able to so uh, so yes and um, and also I would say a kind of general lack of generosity that is a part of a culture that is too focused on the individuals. So I know we're straying from criminal justice system here, but I think like one of the things that is very concerning to Americans is this idea that people will get benefits from the government that don't need it and don't deserve it. And, you know, in, in honor cultures, there is this tremendous... emphasis on hospitality on 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 being generous towards your guests and and showing generosity in general that um, that we lack here because we don't feel a and we haven't kind of established generosity as a as a, as a real virtue that is that that uh, that is well motivated but also because we're so worried about well wait a minute that mm -hmm. this person might get something that they don't need or this person might get something that they haven't worked for like I worked for um, and so that's where we are okay I, I want to stick on this point before we go back to criminal justice We're doing an excellent job, by the way, st sticking to a single track in this conversation. <laughs> totally mad culpa. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm still rattled by January 6th and my brain is all over the place, so I apologize. 
but in terms of the community and the generosity aspect, I mm. like if you look at European cultures who are very much liberal, you tend to find a lot more emphasis on generosity than in the United States. I would submit that maybe the problem is American culture is a uniquely selfish culture in world history and not that the, the liberal project has failed. I mean, so I guess this is purely anecdotal. I think maybe there's some sociological or anthropological research on this. But I think just for me traveling, and I've done a lot of traveling in Europe, but also a lot of traveling in Latin America, it's not close between right, the right. more honor-oriented, like South America, Central America, versus Europe even. And you're right. I think there are sort of singular pathologies with America right now, the United States, um, and also some singular goods, but like the, but, 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 and so you can't taint dignity cultures with all of America's problems. Right. Still, I think you see some of these, some of these issues crop up in Europe. And I think, you know, I don't, for example, think of the English as a, as a generous or hospitable people. <laughs> I think the French maybe a little more so, although uh, more so once you get down to the Mediterranean, which has more honor-oriented values anyway. So I don't know. And then but you then go the, to Spain and it's totally, but Spain is, is practically an honor culture. Yeah, then you get old into all those old, tired, sociological, Weberian ideas between Catholic cultures and, and Protestant ethics and... Not today. But it is really interesting as well to think about in terms of um, America's specific issues with criminal justice and incarceration. Yeah. I mean, that is also just seems like an extreme perversion. And I don't think any other European country even comes close to us <laughs> right, in terms right. of yeah. no, how, that's right. how into incarceration we are. And, and a lot of that is just racism. Right. I mean, that has that has nothing to do with either honor or dignity, but is just something that's endemic to our American system. I mean, it could be where do we draw the lines of community, like in in community, in group and out group, right? Like maybe that that's in some ways some sort of manifestation. Maybe. I mean, so I mean, you could try to blame it on honor cultures like white people, but but it's white people is not a an I a real identity like honor cultures have to be a have to be a lot more a lot smaller and more well delineated than just whiteness um and uh yeah so i think there are i think you know but but i guess what one of the points that i try to make in the book is accepting that because i think you're absolutely right i think it's the approach the the philosophical approach that we have to punishment allows for that in a way that that just wouldn't and you know it would be so much healthier and uh to actually when it's possible bring people together and let them work out what is best uh, and what would be most satisfying for the people who are actually affected by the, the wrongdoing or the offense. And often that will entail bringing people and, and having people who would never have a chance to encounter each other and to talk and have conversations and to make connections. It, 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 it it allows for that. And, you know, when restorative justice does happen, it often leads to 
or uh, to longstanding relationships afterwards that never that never would have happened otherwise because we are so segmented into our own bubbles. You bring up one example in which restorative justice has been implemented in the book uh, where a driver who was high on meth hits a person off the road and the victim in court oh, yeah. asks for the sentencing to be lenient or to be reduced because that the the victim also had a history with with drugs and said i i had dark days myself i i, I understand it i want to i want to make sure that the person who who hit me gets a second chance and that their life isn't ruined and, and i think the court ended up obliging there, there are two different there are two different cases yeah there's one case in both cases the court initially obliged but in one of them they were overturned by an appeals court precisely because that person got uh, a punishment that was deemed to be too lenient compared to other people who had committed uh, a, a similar offense in another case it was actually more lenient um, it was a victim impact statement this was a case in Colorado And the judge took it into account, but only, uh, but only slightly. It was only allowed to reduce it um, by a few years. But he did reduce it by a few years because of what the victim said. And you make the observation in the book that everyone uh, came out better off from this interaction with the system than, than they would otherwise. And when I read it, I thought, you know, you're right. The concern that people like me, simpletons, think when they hear about restorative justices, as you point out, what if we get a, a utility monster victim, like a sadist, who, right. after getting hit by a car, goes before the court to, to demand that the accused gets 35 years in prison plus a lashing. But what this shows is that for some people, for whom having a say in the system, having their voice heard or... Being involved in authoring their own justice is more important than mere revenge. Restorative justice is a much more meaningful option than just sending somebody to languish in prison. Yeah, because it humanizes also all the parties involved too. And you know, mm-hmm. because this is something that happens in face-to-face interactions, I, the, you're right that people imagine hypothetically that victims will be more vindictive and this, and, and this will lead to higher sentences. But the evidence on this is pretty clear. That's not exactly not what happens. Vic, uh, when the, uh, these kinds of face-to-face interactions are allowed to occur and when the victim really feels like their voice matters in terms of the outcome, it, it, it become, it, they will more often than not go for significantly more lenient sentences. And also outcomes that are actually helpful to them in a way that, mm-hmm. like you said, the offender just um, suffering in prison for 15 years and then getting out maybe on parole and, and one tiny little misstep in a society that they're not equipped at all to um, succeed or flourish in will just send them back to prison. Like that's, you know, that's not helpful for anybody. What, what, what convinced you on, on restorative justice? What was your moment with it when you, your eyes were open? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, so I think there were a couple of things. There, there was there was this really good piece in the New York Times. I think it had a bad title. It was Can Forgiveness Play a Role in, in Criminal Justice? Because this wasn't about forgiveness, but it was an example of restorative justice for a murder. Maybe one of the kinds of offenses that you would think really restorative justice almost can't play a role. But it was between it was a, a, a guy that um, that killed his girlfriend after a, they, they had been fighting for um, a, a long period of time, and um, and they ju- and and there was a Florida prosecutor who was approached by the victim's family and that asked for some sort of restorative process to occur, where they could talk to the 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 killer of their daughter and that they could have a voice in the punishment. Now, of course, this isn't built into our legal system. So what the uh, what the DA promised was that the offender could that that would get a, a plea that was a more lenient plea if this is what the family asked for. And I, you know, I'm not going to do the article justice. It's definitely something that you have to read. And but this was one of the first things that opened my eyes was just reading about that. And it's it's really well done. Just the details of that interaction between the victim's parents and the offender, and and how it all worked out was something that I thought was kind of beautiful. And obviously, much healthier and morally better than the way we go about it. And then there's this other article that on a philosophical level called Conflicts as Property by the a Norwegian criminologist, Niels Christie, that was also very eye-opening for me just as a, as, it was paradigm shifting. You know, it was one of those papers that was like, oh, wait, I've been looking at this all wrong. Um that paper argued that conflicts are often a good thing because of their ability to bring people together and also communities together and that the state is stealing them from us um, through the criminal justice system. Again, it's a short paper. I recommend people read it. But then once I had that basis, I just started looking at all sorts of case studies. Restorative justice is definitely something that you want to watch videos, you want to read cases, you want to see it in action. And, and that's, you know, once you see it in action and you actually see that this is an approach that can function and, and it can lead to, it can turn something that was bad into something that's actually positive it it becomes sort of mind-boggling why we don't use it as uh, more often than we do. And and you know, I will say that we have in in schools there's been a big push towards restu- restorative justice. In juvenile courts, there's been a big push towards it. And you know, in 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 criminal cases, it usually has to be this workaround through the through the DA. But there are baby steps in that direction as well. The idea of the reduction of uh, uh, conflict and, and friction by the state uh, as a negative reminds me of the 
Boston Miracle, which you describe in, in the book, which is a program that tried to decrease the homicide rates by reintroducing some form of conflict and even non-lethal violence as a more a more satisfying visceral way to resolve conflicts that doesn't necessarily escalate to right. shootings. You describe how um, some of the people who were involved in the program were thrilled to see fistfights coming back to the right. streets of Boston because it indicated that uh, those communities are, are rediscovering old ways to resolve their conflicts satisfactorily without turning to gun violence. Right. That, 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 uh, that program was uh, strongly focused on just getting firearms out of the equation. This is another kind of singular thing with America is that there are just <laughs> like mm. hundreds of millions of guns in this country. And so that the idea is let, let people have uh, work out their own conflicts and you might treat that more leniently, but anytime a gun is involved, then, um, then you're going to react more certainly and more harshly. And the idea behind that is, is both you know, to give a strong deterrent to anybody from using guns and also allow them to kind of save face to not use guns because everybody knows that that's, that's the rule. And also to get people to police themselves about guns because not only, there was a kind of collective punishment aspect to it. It's like, look, we're, gonna, we're not going to like bother you with your little pot deals and stuff like that unless there starts to be guns in this neighborhood. And if, if we see that, then we're going to crack down on every little minor offense. So that encouraged people to, to, um, to restrain the more hot-headed members of their community. There's also another program that I talk about in the book that is, I think, more related to restorative justice. And I'm forgetting, but it's out in Chicago. Uh, it was started out in Chicago and it was one that brought gangs to, that were having feuds together, and it was headed by former gang leaders. So you, they, they got former gang leaders who were, were respected by the people involved, and they brought them together to try to resolve conflicts. And it was, they were very... The interrupters, I think you said they were called. The interrupters, yes, right. And I strongly urge people to see that movie, The Interrupters, um, the Violence Interrupters Program. I can't remember exactly what it's called. They were called The Interrupters. But, um, but yeah, and one of the, the interesting aspects about that that is very honor-related is they the police weren't involved the gang leaders were not supposed to have um any kind of police affiliation there's a strong mistrust of third party authorities or impartial third party authorities and honor cultures which is why they sought out these um former gang leaders or gang members that um, were not affiliated with either of the gangs that were having the conflict, but that were respected. They were OGs, you know. Yeah, I guess I'm just thinking about like one of the questions that kept coming up as I was reading the book was like a lot of the ways that the things are conflict is resolved is is physically right, and when you have a distrust of a third party um, authoritarian outside outside party that really puts people at a disadvantage who aren't 
inclined to physical yeah. a- action, right? I'm thinking of the kid bullied in the schoolyard or something, you know, or even just, you know, general person that can't, who cannot Me, fight myself. Physically. I cannot. That's why I'm such a big fan <laughs> of dignity culture. I cannot fight for myself. I'm not going to be able to. Right. It's so a, like a Nietzschean thing, you know? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Oh, I'm, a, I'm a Nietzschean loser. I'm the totally the clerical class. Right, but but I do know that in your book, you're not saying that you don't need a third party at all. Right. So I was just wondering if you could uh, kind of explicate like what what you see the role of the the outside third party authoritarian person in a more a more positively honor instilled yeah. society. I mean, the, so there's a couple of things. One of them is containment to um, make sure that whatever violence there is, if there is going to be violence, doesn't get out of control. So that's something I think like the in, in Boston, that was one of the, that was the role of the third party there is to keep the violence at a, at a minimum. Um, not to extinguish it entirely because that was impossible, but to contain it. And then the other thing is to address, like you said, power imbalances. And mm-hmm. so I think, you know, you see with schools, you use the bully example. There are a lot of times where, you know, yeah, it would be nice for this kid to stand up for the bully. And if they if they can, that's they'll gain a lot of respect from 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 the kids in the yard and um, and maybe from the bully even um, him or herself, but probably more likely himself. Uh, I, at, at the same time, like that's not just how it works. I mean, I was also, I'm not a big person. I'm not a good fighter. <laughs> I lost pretty much every fight that I've been in. But the, but you know, I've always been in situations where I wasn't going to get killed and I wasn't going to like get my head bashed in because I fought. Um, and so I think, you know, some sort of cont- some sort of way of addressing power imbalances is important while maintaining sort of that interaction that allows for people to humanize each other and be involved in their own conflicts. I think in the schools right now, so you talk about bullying or you talk about people who break school rules, it's it used to be suspensions and then expulsion and then the whole school to prison pipeline. And now with restorative justice, you see schools are a big success story um, Typically, with restorative justice, you 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 bring the whole com- student. You can bring the students together. Now, there are there there are there is a third party making sure that uh, you know the bullying doesn't continue, and that people who are physically weak can still have a voice. But um, rather than just sending the bully home for a week or forever, you now have all the students there trying to work it out in ways that make them, that kind of build bonds and build connections. And so that's the role of the third party is to address the power imbalances and contain whatever violence there might be. And, and sometimes that's possible and sometimes it's not, you know, so when it's not, then you have to use an alternative approach. Right. But mediators are very, very important in this. Mediator, in this yeah, that and um, mediators with some authority, like they do have to have an authority, but they also have to have the flexibility to allow people to work out their conflicts within 
uh, a fairly broad set of parameters. You open your book describing a few scenes from The Godfather because that that movie really juxtaposes those two justice systems in their in their extreme the alienated liberalism and dignity culture on one hand and on the other uh an extreme version of of honor culture you point out how uh, viewers tend to relate to the character of sunny the the hot-blooded son who beats up with his own fists every person who dishonors the the family but where you really see the conflict between those two systems is is in the opening scenes when uh, an undertaker comes to the to the to Marilyn Brando and says, "I need to ask you to do justice for my daughter. My daughter was was uh, violently assaulted or raped by these two teenagers, and they got away scot free from the trial. The system, the the dispassionate system, has failed." And now he comes to the gangster to rectify this injustice. And all the Godfather asks for in return is total loyalty and friendship. I think this captures a strong idealized version of the honor culture because it gets the job done. And I can already tell from your grimace that you have deep disagreements. But my, my, my point is that this highlights... That the dark side in honor culture goes beyond mere blood feuds because what happens when you displace the supposedly disinterested third-party adjudicator and allow the quote-unquote community to regulate itself is you get local gangsters who take over the community and simply supplant the Leviathan gangsters of the state. Yeah, and I think... Sometimes the Leviathan gangster of the state is significantly worse, and sometimes it's not. Um, yeah, I, I, I was just grimacing when you said this is an idealized form of honor culture. I don't think that that opening scene is an idealized form of honor culture. And yeah. <laughs> oh, no, 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 you're, you're right, you're right, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> the idealized was a bit of, of a stretch. It is idealized in a sense that it is very viscerally satisfying. <laughs> um, yeah. So I want to talk about safety, um, which, we, which is a, actually a good transition from the point of violence. I, I found your argument about uh, safety and risk aversion to be one of the most provocative in the book. You argue that the the move that we can definitely witness around us towards extreme risk aversion and safetyism is a result of dignity culture. Yeah, I think we kind of fetishize safety now in our culture. And, you know, one of the things that I was sort of morally appalled by was uh, this at the time I was writing that chapter, there were a lot of and there still are Syrian refugees that um, governors were falling all over themselves trying to figure out ways that they could say no, they'll become terrorists, and we're not gonna we're not gonna take them in, we're not gonna allow them. And uh, I found that to be appalling. First of all, a lot of these Syrian refugees are there because of our interventions, and they need our help because of that. But second of all. The, the chances of one of them forming a terror cell that then leads to some sort of terrorist attack was so vanishingly tiny to non-significant that it just shouldn't be playing into anybody's calculation at all. And, and I think, you know, this was just a, a broader um, 
example of this phenomenon where we are so averse to incurring any risk to our physical safety and our lives that I think is morally problematic and also just just not a way to live a flourishing full life. Like there's just no way to do that without taking some risks and accepting those risks. And we have a system that just doesn't encourage that. You know, it's not that there's some part of a dignity culture that kind of philosophically establishes that we should never take risks. It's just that we don't have a system of values in place that encourages bravery or courage um, in the way that honor cultures do. And so this will then manifest itself in all sorts of ways from the trivial, like the bicycle helmets, to I think the really morally um, abhorrent, like the way we responded to the refugees. Why do you hate bicycle helmets so so much? By the way, I, I you you have your explanation in the book, and and I I, I still didn't fully get it. I want to give you a chance <laughs> to defend. Well, I, so I feel like there the battles are still ongoing that I had in the book, except bicycle helmets. I feel like the tide has turned and I have won that battle. <laughs> and that at the time I was writing it versus right now, there's a significant drop, certainly down here in Houston, in the number of people who wear bicycle helmets. No, I was just saying that uh, as somebody who doesn't like to wear a helmet and doesn't, and is willing to take whatever insignificant risk that uh, that carries with it, I've been lectured by people about bicycle helmet safety and um, and that it's always been infuriating and all and and I, again it's that mindset that you have to do everything uh, possible to reduce the risk of some sort of harm or injury is I think not a way to live uh, like a virtuous full good life. So, um, so that was sort of the the, the the trivial, comical example. Because I know I'm a little crazy when it comes to bicycle helmets. I do think that people who don't wear helmets also support, uh, if they're being consistent, the Syrian refugee ban. But uh, <laughs> I, I think it's more just it's it's another symptom of this mindset that is so problematic um, right now. I definitely agree with you on the descriptive side, but I'm not sure about the causality here because it's not exactly clear to me why dignity culture would be so necessarily risk averse, except for maybe the idea that you um, uh, uh, outsource justice to to a third party again, so that you just assume that you have this paternalistic guardian always taking care of you, and that just becomes its own pathology to the point where more and more things get outsourced to the to the state to the third party no no no. it's the lack of positive values assigned to courage and acceptance of risk for either the good of your community or just the good of you know yourself because you will get to live a fuller life so it's more it's not that there's anything you know in Rawls that would necessarily lead you to be more risk averse or anything in Kant. It's uh, it's that 
what liberalism in general and these kinds of philosophical approaches lack is positive motivation to incur risk. And so I think we are naturally maybe uh, risk averse. And, and when we don't have a great sense of meaning or purpose, then it seems like, well, live as long as you can. That's, a, that's, that's the goal now. That's the only goal. Um, and so I think like these other kind of value systems give a more positive motivation for acting courageously and being willing to suffer or accept risk for the sake of some greater good. And that's, that's, that's the tie. That's the connection. In this regard, how do you assess the past year when it comes to our response to coronavirus? Yeah. Um, so I don't know, like maybe, maybe that's, that's maybe in this case, like this idea of an attack, this fanatical attachment to individual liberty and freedom is in this one instance, uh, leading people to incur more risk. I don't know. Like it's very hard to get in the heads of some of these people. I think it is maybe a kind of in, in this case, not healthy bravado on the part of some people. I also think there are, you know, with some of the anti-maskers, they really do think that coronavirus is a hoax or it's way overblown by the media to get Democrats elected or to give them more power and authority, to give the state more power and authority. And so they, they think the risks are minimal to, to none. Um, yeah, it's it's funny. I never thought of that. Like, you know, reading that chapter in in this time when you have a lot of people who seem overly willing to accept risks, both on their own behalf and on behalf of other people that they might be endangering. Uh, funny because the way I read it in this context is from the opposite side. I I saw the expression of of safetyism as a potential willingness to over time cede more and more personal freedoms as often happens in times of crisis like take 9/11 as a as a case study and to be clear i am fanatically averse to the anti-mask movement i find it juvenile repugnant it takes zero personal cost to wear the masks so unless you're asthmatic just fucking do it for the possibility of reducing community risk by even a fraction but a concern that came in, in a few conversations that Vanessa and I have, have recorded is, is that people might look at uh, places like China that had a more authoritarian solution to containing the, the disease and say, yeah, they had it right. They did it right. Because countries with more authoritarian controls were able to reduce the spread of the disease more efficiently. Mandated social behavior. And the scary thing is that a society like us that has, like you said, fetishized safety might look at those results and say, we'd like what they're having. And that would mean a willingness to see a reduction of rights and liberal values for the sake of safetyism, which to me suggests that safetyism is the underlying pathology, not necessarily a result of dignity culture. Yeah, 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 right. I mean, so analogously, as I think you alluded to, like the Patriot Act in response to 9-11 and all of a sudden everybody, like we're taking off our shoes at airports for, um, even though that provides, like the whole idea of security theater. And I think, you know, 
we can do that with the mask. And we're, we're still doing it, like wiping down all surfaces well past the point where anybody thinks that really matters. Like my daughter's school gets wiped down anytime somebody has. That's, that's literally just for show. But it is just to uh, for people to feel like they're not incurring any tiny bit more risk than they have to. And when you know, it becomes problematic is when you do start ceding more power to the state. I think a lot of people are already worried and probably rightly so about, you know, the capital. Are, are we going to give more money to Capitol Police now because, you know, they failed to um, contain this group of protesters who are allowed to enter? And then, you know, are, are we going to allow right. them now to serve uh, greater surveillance powers than they already have through the Patriot Act? And are we going to cede more and more authority? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is a problem. I yeah, I guess I'm not to- I'm not so worried about that, you know, that we're going to become like China when it comes to these diseases just because we're so far from it right now. Like there's we're so like and and maybe that's because I live in the south and hmm. you know, it was really hard for our governor even to just issue a mask ordinance for public places without getting a lot of blowback from his own side. And um, it seems like, at least on this particular issue, that's not the thing I worry about. Um, it's frustrating and annoying, like some of this stuff, the ways people handle in, in schools. Although schools is a great example, actually, to your point. When New York City was closing down the schools, and a lot of, uh, in a lot of cities, they were closing down schools when the risk was minimal. And a lot of it is because p- teachers just didn't want to incur the risk that they would that they would have fr- from being in the school, even when it was fairly well established that schools weren't a place where transmission occurs at the rate that they thought it would, and also that the children were really suffering from remote learning. And I, I honestly, I'm frustrated with professors who aren't trying to get back into the classroom and who consider themselves victimized if, if university um, even encourage them to, to try to get back. Like I, you know, that's, it's our job. We're, it's supposedly something that we're that's that we think is so important that we're uh, wary of a, a focus on online teaching. And now all of a sudden, this pandemic happens, and and all these professors are so adamantly opposed to taking a mild risk of getting back in the classroom. Uh, I yeah. So I guess in that sense, it is that same phenomenon. Well, there's like an hour more worth of questions that I, I want to ask and argue with about. I really recommend people read the whole book. Despite my posture, I found the book incredibly persuasive. I'm not sure I'm converted, but um, I'm, I'm, it definitely gave me a lot to think about. And one point that we, we hardly got to touch is the, the issue of, um, <laughs> despite it being actually fundamental to the whole concept of honor, is the issue of reputation and how absent it is from current American culture. You, you describe the, the, the current crisis of shamelessness in, in the United States, and it rang so true considering 
what we're seeing today in our government and the, the total disregard to even the appearances of integrity. There are no social costs to being a hypocritical scumbag. I mean, just thinking of, of whether it's Lindsey Graham about uh, appointing justices or uh, Cruz and Hawley defiling the democratic process, spitting absolute crap about the electoral system. How great would it be if we could cause them to feel just a modicum of shame? And also, you mentioned affluenza is another example of it. So this was just a tease on the record that the argument is so much more than we were able to uh, scratch in this discussion. So, uh, uh, Vanessa, you had a question. Yeah, it's interesting. As as you were talking, I was thinking about my question, and I think it I think it relates actually because I what you were what I think Adam was getting at was his, with his uh, uh, earlier question was you know why isn't community enough? I like or at least the and I think what you were getting at is that, well, the abstract of community isn't enough. You need to have these reinforcing behaviors. You need to have something that motivates action. And that's why honor actually kind of matters because it's what's what's going to be lived is is what's going to result in the community. And, and that actually links to my question, which was reading your book, I was really struck by how often you really focus on, listen, I'm not talking about the the merits of the philosophical arguments here i'm really t- i'm really trying to focus on how do we live out day to day things like retributive justice what are the lived experiences of these so-called ideals that are supposed to be so much much better and it really struck me that it, it's kind of odd that you're a philosopher if you will <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's almost like it I, it almost felt like your book was very rooted in anthropology and psychology and how people actually re- experience and respond to um law or or whatever whatever you know however society is kind of structured and i guess i w- i wanted to ask you you know do you do you still i assume you still consider yourself a philosopher yeah. <laughs> why <laughs> and and is this is this a direction that you think philosophy is headed in much more rooted in reality um okay so <laughs> great question big question sorry <laughs> uh, i do consider myself a philosopher um in part because you know my job is to teach philosophy and because <laughs> i think of philo- being a philosopher as 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 something that is bigger and more general than just, you know, how analytic philosophers have conducted the field within the last 90 or 100 years. Um, Response to your second question, do I see philosophy headed towards something that's more rooted in the particular and the concrete and less rooted in abstract and idealizations and systematized theories? Unfortunately, no. you know, there are, there's definitely maybe a little bit more uh, acceptance of views, and especially with some feminist philosophy, um, the ethics of care, which is also very critical of hyper-abstract, idealized um, approaches to justice and more focus on real people and real uh, uh, feelings. Um and the way that actual individuals interact with each other, but it's 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 on it's on the fringes still. And I think my problem with philosophy 
really from the get-go has been an uh, overly systematic uh, approach to inquiry that just blithely ignores the reality of what's being discussed. But I don't think that's true of philosophy in general. I don't think that's true about, say, the Stoics or even Plato, um, if you interpret Plato correctly, all the way up to Hume. And it's, it's had... It's had that element of it, but it hasn't been as predominant as it as it became in the 20th century. A, that was a very... I did not expect that question, Vanessa. I'm very, very <laughs> glad. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's... I mean, it, when you think about, you know, what is the role of philosophy, I, this has always been my beef with it, that, like, how it's really interesting to, you know, have this bout of intellectual intellectual masturbation but when it comes down to it doesn't really matter in my life and like that's that's why i thought this was your book was interesting because it felt like that was the premise like let's ground this in what matters in our lives today yeah and also not ignore the reality so i think philosophers have a sense have uh, they're too easy on themselves and uh, this this is especially i think problematic when it comes to something like criminal justice because they invent these systems which they kind of admire for their elegance even when they're ultimately incoherent as <laughs> retributivism is they still admire just the 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 intricateness of it and the way it's all systematized together and and then when they see or they'll just openly acknowledge that it's a complete mismatch with what actually happens at every level of the criminal justice system. It just doesn't bother them because they say, well, that's just because they're not living up to this ideal that we have presented to them. And they feel like their job is done there. Now it's just the policymakers and the, you know, and and the judges and the juries and um, but my my work here is done and I think that's a really unfortunate aspect of how a lot not all but a lot of philosophers have conducted their their business including some of the most influential you know like political philosophy I think is is kind of disgraceful when it comes to this because it really is just about these hyper abstract atomic individuals interacting with each other in some sort of space that has nothing to do with the reality of human real human interaction and it's you know that's it's not that's what it's supposed to be about and ethics too i mean so much of ethics is just about like how do you define what a reason is and it's like, what the, like, what are you talking about? Um, and I, I think this is, uh, no, this is something that just hasn't been true until the last hundred years or so. Funny, th this actually helped clarify to me where some of my objections uh, are, came from. And like my call for cognitive dissonance in our appreciation of political theorists like Rawls is is that. I don't see him as an operation manual. Maybe he, he viewed his own work this way, but I can only see it as something that you look to aspirationally as, as finding some justification for the more inspired patterns in liberal society. 
But you have to know when you're encountering those texts that the reality is muddier, way muddier, and that real agency doesn't play along with the Kantian imperatives or the, the, the Rawlsian schemas. But I guess what's the point of, first, what's the point of an aspiration that is totally disconnected from the facts on the ground. So take the idea of, of the veil of ignorance. Uh, if you if you think about the veil of ignorance as a just as a tool, as a as a religious metaphor almost, it, it it does give you a story that clarifies an idea of of distributive justice that appeals to your better angels and for to your desire for rationality. You know, if you don't think about it too hard. But if you look at it like the, the biblical stories, like Adam and Eve, it has the strength of mythology that guides you in some way, but, but, but you shouldn't be too literalistic yeah. about. Yeah, but good mythology has good characters. Exactly. Like, I, if, I, <laughs> if I wanted mythology, I'll go to like uh, Homer and the Greek tragedies, and that's fun and interesting. Sure, but that's style. That's style, right? Like the, like narrative styles have changed over the years, and and, and they changed from Homer through the Renaissance and 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 to to James Joyce. What we what we see in in this kind of uh, philosophy is is a style that emphasizes clockwork humans. Alienating analytical writing is just the style of the past 150 years in philosophy. I mean, so if you want to look at it that way, I guess then it's just the we have different tastes and myths, I guess. Uh, <laughs> that is not my taste, but maybe it's yours and that's fine. I don't think philosophers themselves can think of what they're doing that way. And mm. so, in fact, they might, some of them might be offended by that. Mm. So at least if, if, if this was just transparently what they took themselves to be doing and we could evaluate them as whether these are good and useful myths versus not useful myths, then that would be one thing. But it's really, it's, it's not like, you know, and, and, you know, you take something like John Locke or he thought he was establishing like natural rights. You know, he didn't think like this is, I'm establishing a myth, uh, a mythical system for, um, you know, in the way that, like, you know, Plato's myth of Ur or whatever at the end of the Republic. He didn't, he, yeah, but many of the of the the writers of of epic poetry in in Rome and Greece and the the authors of the Talmud, they believed that they were transcribing some some immortal truth, but their lasting legacies is myth. Well, I don't know. Like, I can't speak to like the biblical stuff, but I don't. You know, certainly the Greek tragedians didn't think that they were divinely inspired in a way that um, I think they thought they were getting at human truths through um, a presentation of these mythical situations and characters and stories. Um, I, yeah, I, I you know, I, it, again, maybe I'm wrong and maybe some philosophers think of what they do that way. I think it's it's bizarre in the sense that the way that philosophy is evaluated isn't mm. whether it's good myth, it's whether the arguments are valid or sound and whether you can come up with good counterexamples. And, uh, right, so right, right. I guess that's the... It, it has the pretense of a scientific uh, inquiry yes. into itself. It yeah. has the pretense of it, it's the correct, it's the word. 
um, uh, the, the right word for that. It has the pretense of scientific inquiry. In fact, it's the methodology is modeled after a scientific inquiry, even though it lacks that empirically right uh, in, empirical aspect. I guess I just take for granted that it is a pretense, and, and, and but you're right. Obviously, the people working at it might, might be offended if I just blithely describe their life's work as pretense. But if you think of, you know, something like the Stoics or the Epicureans um, and the way they approached ethics, it was really about like living a good life in ways that could be realizable for you as a human mm-hmm. being. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and Aristotle and his approach to ethics too, about building good habits and um, you know, uh, aligning your, your feelings and your actions in the right way that would, uh, that would lead to virtuous character. Like these are things that you could actually put into action and implement in ways that are, just don't seem to be aspired to even by a lot of contemporary ethicists and um yeah and, and fuck them for this no which is a shame because like when do what do we need more ethical guidance than right now in, in 2021 like i i it could i could use some some more of those in my yeah. in my social media feeds and, and i'm often <laughs> i want to make clear also that i think philosophy has room like i've been able to conduct my career with as somebody who's openly hostile to these more abstract approaches mm-hmm. to the field. I think philosophy is good about having room to do a lot of these things. It's very flexible, as opposed to something like social psychology, where are, there are these deep methodological problems that are recognized by at least some of the, the, the people involved, but no real way to, to fix them because the, you know, the, it, of the fact that they have labs and they need to write grants and they need to get. So I think that philosophy has some advantages over other fields as well, but it, it, it has taken an unfortunate turn in my view um, in the last hundred years or so. Tamla Summer, thank you so much. Thank and you. We apologize for <laughs> wasting your time arguing about the <laughs> nature of philosophy, but... Well, if I could <laughs> be a little more eloquent it. and articulate, uh, I don't think it would have gone on this long, so thank you. No, no, that's definitely not true. <laughs> no, it's definitely, uh, we, we like to go on and on. <laughs> I, I, it's, no, but it is true. Like, I, I just, this, I'll tell you this story where I was on Reddit and I, someone directed me to somebody saying, are there any public intellectuals that you think are especially articulate or uh, eloquent? And um, so somebody in this Reddit thread said, Tamler Summers. And <laughs> there was a reply to that that said, look, I love Tamler, but if there's one thing he's not, it's eloquent. And then the other poster replied to him saying, I know I was just kidding. So, <laughs> so it was like, Harsh. it was so well known that, that per- the original person thought that, they, that it would be clear that they were being sarcastic. You know, um, that's, that's where, and I, you know, that's uh, well. Well, I'm the you're, you're you're in good you're in good company. We are the R- Rambler podcast, and yeah, the yeah. um and I will again reiterate that people should read the book because a it it reads 
wonderfully and if if you want to see tamler at his most eloquent just, just read it it is it is it is a great read and like i said much more persuasive than i expected coming from my um staunch yes. position of of objection thank you i really appreciate that and you know that was the goal so um yeah uh, thank you for having me on this was a lot of fun Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Follow us on uncertain.substack.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you're in a giving mood, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It helps a lot. Here's to an Insurrection Free Week. Stay sane.